Okay, so what we want to do over these next, I should know the number, five to six weeks, however many weekends there are between now and New Year's, we want to take a look at the word Jesus in the world, right? There's all the stuff going on around us, all the things we hear about on the news, the craziness with North Korea, is Jesus real? Is he present? Is he changing and impacting our lives? And there's no better time to talk about this than during Christmas time, right? We celebrate his birth. Free people freely talk about Jesus over these next six weeks. We sing songs about him. We read stories about his birth. We read about the things that he came to do. But is he alive and active in the world? Is he alive and active in our lives? And so that's what we want to do is we wrestle with the ups and downs of life, the things that disappoint us, the things that challenge us. Is Jesus a baby in a manger? Or is Jesus alive and well and impacting our lives? That's what we're going to challenge ourselves for the next six weeks. But before we do, before we turn to his word, let's bow our heads and ask God to lead us. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. That we can look at it today. That is alive and living and should impact the way that we live amongst each other. In our service to you. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. As we turn to understand more about him and the impact that he should have on our lives, we ask you to open our hearts, to soften them so we can receive your word, not only as knowledge, but to, for life impact, life change. And so we ask you to guide us this morning. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right. So on October 1st of this year, 64-year-old Stephen Paddock, a millionaire, opened fired from a hotel window on 22,000 unsuspecting concertgoers on a strip of Las Vegas. In 10 minutes, he fired 500 rounds of ammunition. The investigators still are looking for answers as to why. Was it hatred? Was it anger? Was it mental illness? We don't know what led to the single biggest mass murder in the United States history. 58 people died and 546 were injured. We may never know what went on. And this one hits a little home to me. My brother was there. Thankfully, by the grace of God, he left 30 minutes before the rampage started to meet some other friends at a different hotel. He is still shaken to his core over the events. Fast forward just a little over a month, three short weeks ago, a 26-year-old who was kicked out of the military, walked into the small Sutherland Springs church outside of San Antonio, Texas, and opened fired on an unsuspecting congregation, killing 20 people and injuring another 26. The fifth deadliest shooting in the United States history. 
in the aftermath, in the carnage of what has taken place, has fueled a debate that has gone on forever about the right to carry arms and the right to access assault rifles. Those on one side of the argument say this would have never happened if guns were outlawed. It would never have happened. Then you get the others on the other side of the argument. They said, well, it's my constitutional right to bear arms. And if it wasn't for the bystander who we now hail as a hero who shot the guy out on the streets, that the damage would have been much greater than what it is. Each side of this argument vehemently argues that, that their position that their point of view is the way to a more controlled society, a more peaceful society, on how we can bring people together. Two completely different sides. And this is not a new debate, is it? This debate has gone on for decades. The one thing that we can all agree on is we want a more peaceful society, don't we? One where we don't have to worry about mass shootings. We don't have to worry about the people that protect us, like Officer Brian Shaw in New Kensington this week, being killed in cold blood. We don't want to live in a society that puts us on edge, that makes us anxious, wondering if we should go to a football stadium or go to the mall or, heaven forbid, even church. We can all agree that we want a peaceful society, to live in harmony with one another. But if we can't agree, if we can't agree on what the issues are, how can there ever be peace? How can worry and the anxiousness to come from these things ever be gone? And can we really live in peace with one another? Well, as we attempt to answer those questions, let me start by saying this. Our hope for peace in society has nothing to do with guns. Nothing to do with guns. This problem is way deeper. Goes back way further than the early 1900s when assault rifles became available. It goes back way further than the 1300s when the first firearm was created. Heck, just go right back one century before that to the 1200s. Genghis Khan on his way to amassing the largest land empire the world has ever seen, about the size of Africa, he slaughtered, and his men slaughtered, 700,000 people. Not a single gun was involved. We go all the way back to God's holy word, and we see murder in the on the pages in between these covers, I had the privilege of speaking about Moses a few weeks ago, right? We talked about him being a, a man of faith. He killed an Egyptian because he was abusing a Hebrew. Go back further to almost the very beginning of time 
when Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, killed his younger brother, Abel, in a fit of jealousy. See, the issue isn't guns. The issue isn't the weapon of choice. It's not the sword or machetes that that, that um, Khan and his men used. It's not the stick or stone or hands that Cain used to kill Abel. That's not the problem. The problem, which is much deeper than that, is the enmity, the opposition, the hatred that exists between men, between us. And this enmity not only exists between us, this enmity exists between us and between God. See, the issue here goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Well, almost the beginning of time. All right, see, when God created everything, we see this in Genesis, right? He created when he was done. He said everything was good. And Adam and Eve lived, they lived in perfection. They had everything that they needed. And they were in community with God. There was was peace. There was love. They walked with God in the garden. There was no enmity. There was no hatred. But that came when they disobeyed God. See, when God placed them there, placed them in that garden, he gave them one rule. Don't eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent came along and deceived Adam and Eve. And they wanted to be like God. They wanted to know everything. And they took that fruit and they bit it. And at that time, sin entered the world in hostility and bitterness and enmity was born. And you, we see it immediately on the pages of Scripture. Adam and Eve knew what they did because what did they do? They hid from God. There it was. It was born. Peace was destroyed. But in the immediate verses that follow that, God makes a promise. I am going to send somebody to deal with this issue that you have created. And we see this first promise in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Take out your Bibles and read along with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the promise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we have right here is what's called the proto-evangelium, right? This is the first presentation of the gospel. 
And in this promise by God, we see the foundation for the Christian faith right here. The first thing we see is because of what Adam did, man will be cursed and he is going to pay a price for it. The second thing he says is that he is going to send somebody to deal with this issue. Who's going to take this curse upon himself and make right what Adam did wrong. But it was going to take some time for that Savior to come. Okay? So the sin enters the world. Enmity exists between men between God's creation in him, and he promises, I'm going to send someone to fix this. And over the next 3,600 years, God, or man made a mess out of God's creation. Killing, cheating, lying, deceiving, idolatry, witchcraft, sorcery, false prophets, even the Israelites, the one that God promised this Savior through, struggled as well. They struggled with each other. They struggled with their neighboring countries. They struggled with God himself. Even when God would send a prophet reminding them that the Savior was going to come through him, that the Savior was going to come. Get your act together. There's going to be judgment. They couldn't help themselves. And then God went silent for 400 years. So there you have it. The Old Testament in about two minutes. 400 years God goes silent. And then it happened under the most unassuming, unimpressive conditions that you can imagine. God's promise came true, and he brought his Savior into the world. In the little dusty town of Bethlehem, about six miles outside of the pomp and circumstance of Jerusalem. That the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, he was here. He came to fulfill the promise that God made 4,000 years ago. To fix the issue from Adam's misstep, right? Sin that had beleaguered man since the crunch of that first fruit. And we see this story told in Luke chapter 2, verse 4 to 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 4, 7. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now most of you, I would imagine, have started decorating your house over the weekend. 
And probably you've got a picture somewhere of the nativity scene depicting what's going on here in Luke chapter 2. Some of you have a manger set that you put on the mantle, that you put under the tree. Some of them are plastic, some of them are porcelain. But probably somewhere this, this beautiful image of the Lord God himself coming in the flesh, in this manger, in this town of Bethlehem, we depict it in our house. And for the weeks of the Christmas season, we gaze upon it. We talk to our kids about it. We wonder about how God did this and worked this miracle through a virgin birth of the Savior into the world. But as those six weeks or so come to a close, right, Jesus in the little manger gets packed up, put back in the box with all the other little figurines, but put back up in the attic or down in the basement until next year sometime. And the sad and dangerous thing is for some of us, we pack Jesus away in a figurative sense. That once the warmth of the season is over, once the, the pomp and circumstances Christmas is behind us, we take Jesus and we put him aside. Right? Life just picks up its pace. January rolls around and life just continues and Jesus is spoken about less and less and less and we put them off to the side. We leave them as that baby in the manger. And he really doesn't have much of an impact on our lives unless that is we get sick or lose our job or have financial struggles and we pull them out of the box like genie in a bottle and we put them back. See, but God's promises that Jesus didn't come as a baby in the manger to be celebrated once a year like President Washington and Lincoln in February. See, God promised Jesus as a Savior not only to deal with the sin issue in our lives, this enmity between each other and between God, but he sent him to be active in our lives today to make a difference in the way we live our lives amongst each other, in the craziness of the world that we live in. And I love Isaiah, how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah doesn't pull any punches. He's not here to serve, to be a baby in the manger. Look at um, chapter 9, verse 6 in Isaiah. It said, for us, to us a child is born to us a son is given. That right there talks about God being full, Jesus being fully man and fully God. To us a child is born, right? He was born just like you and me. That speaks to his humanness, his humanity. And a son is given. That speaks to his deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fully man and fully God. And he's going to have here, Isaiah lays out five characteristics that show that Jesus was meant to be way more than a baby in a manger. Look at the rest of the passage. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
See, with everything going on in the world today, I want to focus on that last descriptor that Isaiah says, that Jesus came and his name would be Prince of Peace. See, because Jesus came as peace and to bring peace, not to be a baby in a manger. So when we look at what's going on in the world, with the shootings, officers being killed, it's easy for us at times to look at what's going on and wonder how could Jesus, if he came as the Prince of Peace, how is all this stuff going on? Where is the peace? And that's what I want to take this time to look at. And here's what's important about what Isaiah is saying here. Is the peace that Isaiah is talking about is more than a physical peace. Physical safety. More than political harmony with one another. This peace is deeper. This peace affects us personally. And we see this in John chapter 14 verse Um, 27, 14 verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. See, that's the peace that Jesus brings to us. Let our hearts not be troubled. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in the circumstances in our life, no matter what we hear on the news, let our hearts not be troubled. Do not be afraid. That's the peace that Jesus brings. And I will contend that that peace is threefold that comes in Jesus. That in that, we will see and realize a peace with God. We will realize peace with others. And we will realize peace with self. That is the peace that Jesus gives us through him being here. And that's what I want to do, is for our remaining time, is to look at each of these. To see how Jesus... Active, active in our lives, if we follow him, we read his word, we are in communication with him, that we're actively engaged with him, that we will experience this peace in our lives with God, with each other, and with ourselves. And let's start with peace with God. So as we talked about back in the Garden of Eden, God promised to deal with the sin issue, right? That created enmity between us and God. To put it bluntly, that sin made us enemies with God. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, while we were enemies, we were all enemies with God. All of you and me. 
And because we are enemies with God, that means we're separated from him. And there's a penalty to pay for us being enemies of God. That's what we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages, what do we earn for work, right? We earn wages. Well, we earn death because of the enmity with God, the sin that we have. And not a physical death, but a spiritual death, an eternal separation from God, literally a life spent in hell. And there's nothing that we can do about it. But God promised back in Genesis 3.15, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to let you guys take care of itself. Let me know how it works out for you. He doesn't say that. I will fix the sin issue. I will send someone. See, because we can't do it. God's standard is holy. God's standard is perfect. And we are not. We can't give enough. We can't serve enough. We can't pray enough. We can't come to church enough. We can't give enough money away. God tells us our righteous works, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteous works are like filthy rags. But the good news is God kept his promise and sent the Savior, Jesus, to do what we can't do for ourselves. And Romans 5, 8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act cleaned up, not after we stopped swearing or drinking or having premarital sex. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us for us. See, we see right here that Jesus didn't come to be a baby in a manger or a genie in the bottle. Christ came, God himself, in the flesh to walk with people, to eat with people, to minister to people, to heal people, and to die a sacrificial death on the cross, as predicted, to make right our sin that we have against God. That those sins are washed away. We are made as white as snow through believing that. And not only that, that God was resurrected three days later in defeat of death. That's why Jesus came. And then we know in Romans 10, chapter 9, that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, that we will be saved. That we will have eternity with God. That our what? Our peace with God will be restored. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 puts it like this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, right, we believe that God loved us that much and have turned our life over to Jesus, that what? We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I love in that deep, abiding peace between our hearts in between our creator can never, ever, 
ever be taken away from us. John chapter 10, verse 27, 28. Listen, this is so important to understand this eternal security. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Right? Talking spiritually. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think about that. Our salvation through Jesus Christ restores our peace with the living God, puts us back in right standing with him. And not only that, as if that's not enough, this eternal peace that we have with him forever, we also get the gift of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. John 16, verse 7. Look what Jesus promised, right? They didn't want Jesus to leave. But look what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, right? Jesus is only, he was, he was bound by his body when he was on earth, right? He can only be one physical location. But what he says is, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That in us, do we have the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of us? It, what does that mean to us? Practically, what does that mean? Well, having the Holy Spirit living inside of us, when he manifests himself into our life, it helps us to lead a life that we could never lead on our own. And the way it's described to us by Paul to the, to the church in Galatia is found in um, chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. It's the fruit of the Spirit. See, when we have this peace with God and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that our lives should be marked with this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. You see, through the peace of God, through the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we can't help but to live differently. And when we live a life in our school, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, a life that is marked with joy and kindness and love and peace, it can't help to affect the relationships with those around us. Okay, so it's peace with God, and that leads me into my second point, right? Peace with others. 
Now, if you go back to the original question that I asked, right, where does the peace come from? If we can't agree, where does peace come from amongst us? Well, you guys know, right? Conflict's not new. Today, we have different points of views on guns, as we talked about. It could be on abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, the right to protest, whatever it is that we're arguing about at the moment. It's not a new deal. In fact, this, 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 this opposition, if you will, it existed and was a huge problem back in the early church. You think about the very makeup of that early church. It was who? It was Jews and Gentiles. Did the Jews and Gentiles like each other? No. Right? The Jews thought they were someone special, right? They were the one chosen by God that they were going to send the Savior through. So they had an air about them. They looked down on people. They judged people. They were almost considered themselves elite. And the Gentiles on the other side of the thing, they didn't like them because they acted like elitists. And so there they were together, brought together through the common understanding and the common faith through Jesus Christ, brought together as one body, as the church, the very foundation of the new church is at opposition with each other. And things were a mess. And Paul takes note of this and writes a letter to the Philippians to deal with what's going on. Uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry. And he challenges them. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. Listen to how Paul addresses this in the early church. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, right? They were arguing over circumcised and uncircumcised at that point. Making um, expressed ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Paul was saying here is that those who were in Christ should be a peaceful people. Doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. That when you accepted Jesus into your life, he broke down the hostility, the line, the wall in our hearts that would make us look at other people differently and judge them differently, whether it's on their race, whether it's on their socioeconomic um, status, whether it's on their point of view on any topic, that through Christ, he broke down this wall of hostility in us. Jesus doesn't look at people differently because of what side of the tracks they grew up on, what color their skin is, how much money they have or don't have, or what they do for a living or not. Jesus doesn't care. He sees us as one. And if he doesn't care, neither should we. And we should be able to demonstrate this peace with others 
out of an understanding, out of an appreciation because of the peace that we have with God that comes through Jesus. Look at Paul, how Paul challenges the, the Romans, chapter 12, uh, verses 18 to 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be loved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will burn heaping coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, with Christ active in our lives, with the Holy Spirit working in us, from an appreciation of what God did on our behalf, that we can extend the peace that God offers to us through Jesus to those around us. That we can find peace in our hearts to serve our enemies, to forgive those who wronged us, leave the judgment for God, leave vengeance for God. We're called to live peacefully with each other as one body. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ roll in your hearts, to which you were indeed to be called as one body, and be thankful. That's what we're supposed to be. And look how James puts it in James chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. But the wisdom above is pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and of good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I love this part. And let the right harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness when we make peace. Not discord, not disunity, not disagreement. That is how we can live with peace with each other. And then lastly, certainly not east and certainly not the easiest, we have peace with ourselves. And we know that this could be the hardest to grasp. It could be the hardest to maintain. We know when, when our world is rocked, whether it's by another shooting, whether it's by a spouse walking out on us or being unfaithful, whether it's the loss of job or a struggle with income, those things can rock us to our core. They make us anxious. They make us worry. They make us feel vulnerable. They make us pretty much feel anything but peace. But the peace that comes in Jesus Christ 
should take root in us in any of those circumstances and be able to overcome in that spirit of peace. Look at how Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all of our human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That no matter what you're wrestling with, that the peace that comes through Christ can guard our hearts and guard our minds regardless of what's going on around us. See, peace doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. Jesus himself told us that it wasn't going to be. In John 16, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me, not the world, but in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. I have overcome the world. I am the one sent to overcome the world, to overcome this sin issue, to restore peace with God, peace with others, and peace with self. That's who Jesus is. He's not a baby in a manger to be talked about as a historical figure one time a year. He's to be alive in our lives, affecting the way that we process what's going on. And through him, we can live a life of peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. And I want to leave you with Paul's final words the church in, in Thessalonia. He says, now the Lord, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is peace and brings peace. Father, help us be a people to live a life engaged with Jesus. Let us not pack him away, but let us walk side by side with him in our lives so we can be people in peace with you, in peace with others, and in peace within ourselves. It's in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.